Abel, we request you to kindly stand with us as we read the word of God. Today's Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 to 13. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 to 13. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzab. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And, your, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from their father and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tampering, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. All these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now we would also like to read a well-known verse, John 3.16. First we'll read it in our native language, Tamil, and then we'll continue reading in English. John 3.16. Devan tamudiya ore perana kumaranai visuasikravan evano avan kettu pohamal nithiya jeevanai adayum padiki avarai tandarli ivalavai ulahatil anbukundar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Praise be to God. And have, please be seated. Amen. Dinesh and Judah, thank you. And uh, if you you have a chance to be around Dinesh and Judith. The, the joy of the Lord is very evident. Thank you for that. And I was like, oh, Tamil, you know. Um, well, tens of millions of people in the world speak Tamil, so you like to think even uh, on this very day to hear the word go forth across the globe. So thank you. Well, we turn our attention today to the third person of the Trinity. Yeah, I'm sure just by virtue of growing up in America, 
that you've heard Trinitarian blessings. I mean, you've uh, maybe back, you know, grew up in a place where uh, you were taught to cross yourself and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or uh, maybe perhaps been to a wedding where the couple puts the wedding band on and doesn't matter if the couple's particularly religious that they'll usually put that on and do a Trinitarian prayer and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the question becomes, for a congregation like ours, is how does the Holy Spirit work in and among suburbanites like us? That I think as you think through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and you're navigating life, you know, there is a kind of wide acceptance, even still in America, of a concept of, of God, whatever a person might mean by that today. If you watch some of the NFL games, and I'm sure at the uh, post-game interviews, you know, somebody's bound usually to say something about God, and no one really makes a big deal about it. So people have a concept, well, maybe there's uh, something out there that's a little bit bigger than I am, and we call that, that person God, and, and people can be on board with that. And ne next, you get to the sun, and again, because of the residual effects of uh, being in a Christian culture, uh, that people have a, some people have a wide respect for the person of Jesus. They say, well, I think Jesus the man lived, that he had this encounter with the Romans. We know Pontius Pilate was a re real Roman governor, and, you know, Jesus was a good guy, and I generally like the things that he taught. And, uh, you know, people can be on board to some degree with the person of Jesus. But what about the Holy Spirit? You know, for a lot of us, it's just this kind of, you know, part of Christian theology that can seem so esoteric. You know, do we really, you know, b believe in that? What is it, mysterious force? Does he uh, just break in to do weird things to some people? What, what is, we could ask it this way, what is our pneumatology? What is our understanding of the third person of the Trinity? The Father, yes, the Son, but what about the Spirit? And I think this is why now, some years ago, Francis Chan wrote a, a widely popular book, which I think the title you know, says a lot. He called it Forgotten God. And what he was addressing is in the kind of context like ours, in a, in a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church, do we tend to dampen the role of the Holy Spirit in our life? And if we do, what are the great dangers of that? So this upcoming month, we'll explore that in a way that I hope that our congregation uh, becomes increasingly led by the Spirit of God. Now, there are reasons, I think, why we tend to dampen, or I even would tend to dampen, the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, which is these are three problems. So firstly, is given the Christocentric nature of God's redemptive plan, I can squeeze out the Holy Spirit. You say, what am I talking about? It's very clear to me, if you've been to Providence any length of time, you say, how do you get right with God? you come through Jesus. That God says, I, I put my son into history, that he went to the cross, he, he paid the price for the sins of, of sinners like us, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, that we're to receive Jesus. How many times, for example, we went through Luke's gospel, and you get into those chapters in the teens, and it's like person after person receives Jesus. That's what God wants, to, to come to him through his son. And because of that, what I tend to do is that every week say, turn from your sins, put your faith in Jesus. But in so doing, I don't talk enough about the fact that there's a spirit of God that prompts that action, pointing people to Jesus and reminding believers of who we are in Christ. So let's not, we will continue to focus on the cross, on what Jesus did on the cross. That's how we're right with God. But let's not force us then to forget about the third person of the Trinity. Secondly, and I want to be delicate here, it's not my style to, 
speak negatively of, of other traditions, but all of us know that there are some pockets of Christian theology which almost take that first error, error and, and go the opposite direction, where, where the whole assembly, the whole Christian life seems to be about experiences from the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is so amplified that you go and you walk away and say, well, where was Jesus? Um, and this, again, can cause congregations like ours to say, well, I've seen some weird things claimed in the name of the Holy Spirit, therefore, let's not talk about it at all. Uh, we talked about a similar tendency last week, that something deep in the human psyche, that when we see an abuse in an isolated air, that we can tend to say, well, I'm avoiding the whole thing, that that's just too weird and, and too painful, and I don't know what to do with it. It would be, you know, say, well, here's an, an example of somebody claiming something from the Spirit of God. It seems to be an abuse because it's not tethered to Jesus or Scripture. Therefore, we better not talk about him at all, or we're going to end up, you know, being, you know, off the rails, so to speak. I remember early on in ministry where we lived down by Baldwin Wallace and I was discipling a, a young man on the football team and, you know, I was in my mid-20s and there was a, a large, you know, prayer gathering. It was, you know, an ecumenical prayer gathering. All the churches in the area were coming together, lots of young people, and I took a group and, you know, he was with me and we went to this, you know, prayer meeting. I said, what could go wrong? It's a prayer meeting, right? Until uh, someone came up to my, you know, 21-year-old, Baldwin Wallace student, you know, put his hands on the guy. I'm like, right there. You're like, okay, you know, you touch, you know, touch and say, you have a shoulder. The Spirit of God's telling me you have a shoulder problem. My friend says, I don't have any shoulder problem. No, you have a shoulder problem. It's like, no, I don't have a shoulder. So you can imagine, you know, it's just like kind of strange and weird. And, you know, we had the relationship to kind of walk it back. You get the point. So it's an isolated thing claimed in the Spirit of God that can be very off-putting to those who are really trying to, to think through uh, how God interacts with people. But thirdly, so those two heirs, don't let the Christocentric nature of God's redemptive plan to squeeze out the Spirit. Don't let one-off abuses, untethered from Scripture or Jesus, cause us to never talk about the Spirit. But thirdly, and this really is where I want to harbor because this is true for me, that I'm much more comfortable relying on myself than depending on God who indwells me. That I will go long time thinking, I've got this, I can do it, it's no problem, we've got it sorted out, and I don't really find myself consciously saying, am I really walking with the Spirit of God in this? To put it another way, see if we can make it a little bit more practical. Yeah, this is a scary question, you know? If somebody followed me around with their camera on their phone this past week and could record my whole life, I asked, the way that I conducted my affairs and the frustrating things this past week, that my, my interactions, my speech, and somebody compared that video to somebody who I'd call like a, a, a kind atheist. You know, you know the, I've known many of those. Like, really good guy, doesn't think at all about God, certainly no faith in Jesus. Would there be anything noticeably different about my life. Austin confronts a problem, pulls the levers. This guy confronts a problem, pulls the levers. This guy, you know, Austin, this is how he handles tough situations. This is how this guy. Is there anything about my life that really says, you know what, there was, there was a pause, there, there was a moment to say, this is an opportunity for my faith to come through me 
as I yield to God's Spirit. And what worries me increasingly about our church, and you know, I would speak openly to the members of our church, but a lot of people you know, say, well, things are going, going great at church. And I don't, I don't know what to say about that. It, it, you know, and there's an element of it where you, you can devise things to have bigger churches. That doesn't mean healthy. It doesn't mean, well, you know, we, we did a little correction here and, and you figured something out here and you pulled the lever here and we got it all going and look, pretty good, huh? It's an extremely dangerous place to be. That I'd, I'd much rather posture ourselves as saying we're completely incapable on our own as able a congregation as this is, that our chief occupational hazard, as I've said many times, is a kind of self-reliance to say we, we, this idea of being dependent upon God's Holy Spirit is just weird because I've got plenty of credentials and I can figure it out. And if we just manipulate it and play with the knobs a little bit, good to go. And so I think deep down why I wanted to spend the month of October thinking about this is to cultivate in the church family a real sense of our need for God, a real sense of what it might look like to be led to walk with God's Holy Spirit, to see his leading, that as I would interact with people, as I'm frustrated, again, they say, well, wow, there, there was really something different about the way I, I handled that as a result of God living within me. Is that not an expectation we should have? So we begin today on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. So some of us, you say, well, the Holy Spirit, we associate that, rightfully so, with Jesus in the New Testament, but does he just kind of pop on the scene? And the first thing we should notice is that the Holy Spirit, as being fully and truly God, operates in the entirety of God's creation and redemptive order. So I bet uh, some of us can not think about this. Maybe you heard it once, but... The Holy Spirit makes a very early entrance in the Bible. That The first couple of verses, I'll read them to you again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What do you make of that? Say, so, well, in the, God creates everything, and then His Spirit... It's as if the Spirit of God is present over all of the created order. The next thing we learn is that God then speaks matter into existence and fashions it by the instrumentality of His Word. And so I think we do well to say the Trinity, the triune God, actually is immediately there as we open our Bibles at the very beginning. There's a God who creates the Spirit of God hovering over matter, and God fashions it through the instrumentality of His Word, who many years later would become flesh in the person of Jesus the Nazarene. So the Spirit of God is everlasting, that He is God, that He is a He. Again, you'll find people slip into it, say, well, are we talking about a mysterious force here, kind of... You know, what, what's, what's going to happen? Can I have part of him or it? Say, no, the Holy Spirit, like the Father and the Son, is a person that the Spirit of God can be grieved, for example, that he can be lied to, that he's a person, and he's there from the very beginning. That God, no surprise, that this Spirit is often associated with life and vitality. 
that again, right at the beginning of our Bibles, that God breathes in life to the humans. And that idea of breath is the same word as spirit, that God's spirit is what animates, what gives life. Maybe think an example that if you haven't read it in a long time, I've read it a number of times this week, but in Ezekiel 37 from verse 5, maybe you remember this story, you've heard of it, but uh, Ezekiel comes across the valley of dry bones, and we're told how God's spirit reanimates the dried bones. And I think why I was so moved by that this week is because you have uh, a lot of examples of people that, that they wouldn't use the language of dry bones, but it's pretty darn close. It's something like this. I'm drained. I don't have anything to get up for in the morning. I just feel I'm, I'm not excited to do things anymore. I just, my life is one kind of, you know, hamster wheel. And as I studied this, to say, well, actually, the, the Spirit of God, when He breaks in, as we yield to Him, can reanimate our lives in a way that is uh, profitable to give glory to God. Maybe you needed to hear that today, to say, you know what, it's not just going through the motions as a, as a Christian, uh, but rather that I can open myself up to the Spirit of God giving me new life. This is why Paul, who would have been extremely familiar with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but in 1 Corinthians 10, he can write things like this. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Uh, what he's saying there is that the Spirit of God, only, only God can fully know God. And so if the Spirit fully knows God, you say, well, it looks like the, you know, the third person of the Trinity is fully God, that he really knows, you know, knows that God's redemptive plan, that he enacts it. So not just the Spirit of God coming on individuals, but God's Spirit directs and orders history, which brings me to two very important practical applications. Firstly, notice that the Spirit of God usually is associated with direction and order. <laughs> that God's Spirit is what moves the Father's plan forward, that, that He creates things and molds things and fashions things and directs people to God's intended person, right, which is to redeem those who are His. In other words, the Spirit is not associated with chaos and confusion. Again, some seem to get this view that say, if we are really a spiritual people, say, if, if we were real Christians, um, we'd have these experiences that, that are just really strange and odd and hard to explain and, and, and unattached from anything to say, no, the, the Spirit usually is, is about the opposite, about pointing God's people to the way home and ordering and fashioning things and equipping people to do exactly what they're supposed to do. So the Spirit of God is about God's plan, His redemptive order and direction, not about weirdness or chaos or confusion. Second practical point, when people attribute things to the Spirit of God based on what we've said, so the Spirit is truly God, He creates everything, He's active, He gives life. When people say things, say, of the Spirit, or they say that we are spiritual people, we ought to be sure that that movement really comes from God down not from humans up. I'll give you an example. Say, I'm going to say a word I've not said in four years. You ready? Revival. 
say, I don't think Shaw's that passionate about revival. I mean, you know, why, why, why doesn't he talk more about revival? Say, I, I love revival, but I'm absolutely convinced that revival starts from God and comes down. It's not, I got a good idea today. Let's start a revival. I, I, I would love that. I, I, can't, I can't do it. Why can't I do it? Because I'm, I'm a frail and weak person. So if you remember, a, a great example just a few weeks, uh, months ago, if you remember down in Asbury in Kentucky, there, there was a revival. I, I am very comfortable saying the Spirit of God moved on that campus in a way that was very special, that the students were coming, they were praying, there were loads of people driving, there was a, a kind of revitalization in that particular moment. And, and as soon as that happened, what did everybody else say? Let's, let's replicate it. Let's do it. Come on. Let's do Say, I, I just, I'm not convinced. The Spirit of God comes from God and moves as he wants to, to generate his people to do things. And as much as I would love to, to conjure up a revival, it is not in me to do it. It is only in God's people being receptive to what he wants to do, to obeying him, to say, Lord, have your way among us. Allow us to obey your word, to be your people, to be on mission. And as we're doing that, you do with us as you like. And if, if, it, if it takes off, so be it. But I cannot force it. I can only be open to the leading of the Spirit of God. Otherwise, I'm just, again, pulling the lever. So what does the Spirit of God do? He's there from the beginning. He's eternal. He is a he. He is with the Father and the Son that he makes, he sustains, he gives life, he gives direction, he points God's people home. Secondly, now, I want to turn our attention to the passage that was read in 1 Samuel in uh, chapter 10 because I think this is quite indicative of the way the Holy Spirit operated in ancient Israel, and uh, it has some great signposts for those of us in Avon this morning. So the Spirit will endow certain human beings in the Old Testament to do specific tasks. For example, you remember in Exodus, in uh, chapter 31, that there's a, a chap named Bezalel, and Bezalel is commissioned to do the uh, craftsmanship of the tabernacle, that he's an artisan. And we're told the Spirit of God comes upon Bezalel so that he might do this task the way God wants him to do it, which I think is incredible. Again, you might be here, say, well, there's only a few clergymen in the room, but you know, a lot of us, we're, we're in the real world, say, the Spirit of God can come upon a person to equip them for that specific task that they might do it to the, the glory of God. And likewise, the judges, if you read the book of Judges, you'll see that the, the a judge comes to lead and the Spirit comes on, and I'll use that preposition strategically, the Spirit comes on the judge for the time that that judge is calling the shots. Um, and so what about Samuel and Saul here? If you take a glance down at the passage, what's happening contextually? That Israel is asked for a king to be like other countries, other nations, I should say, uh, other, other empires. And Saul is selected as the first king. And Samuel, the prophet, uh, is directed to commission him. So if you take a look there at verse 1, the Lord has anointed Saul to be prince, that is, king over his people. So he's uh, had a special calling to fill this office. 
that this calling is then validated with three signs. This is what dominates verses 2 to, to, to 5, as Judith would read, that he was going to get signs about his father's donkeys being recovered and men giving him bread spontaneously and confronting prophets. So these three signs come to pass. They confirm that Saul is, in fact, God's man for this time. But I want us to pay attention of two incredible things that the Spirit of God does for Saul and why these uh, point us forward. Firstly, look at verses 6 and 9. Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them, and look at this phrase, be turned into another man. What does that mean? You've all interacted with a lot of people. You, you know, you know them, and you say, what, what could it mean for for a man to be turned into another man. I mean, we all recognize each other. I get it, you know, we, we, we age, but we still identify each other. We say, well, this is the, this, the, the same man. What, what might it mean that this man would be turned into another man? And just in case you say, well, is that really what was meant? Look at down at verse 9. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. What in the world? What does it mean that a man could have another heart? I mean, surely, as we know, that this contextually is not talking about the organ. It's not that he got the, a new heart organ. It's saying something like Saul, all of a sudden, would um, his, his will for his life, the, the things that this man would, would strive after, the, the things that he would say would now mark his life as a success, how he would conduct his affairs would be so drastically different because of God's Spirit working in his life. Now, those of us who are Christ followers, you say, wow, look at that language. Say, that, that's a lot like what Jesus talks about. You remember where Judith read in John 3, if you go a little bit before that, Jesus is talking to an expert. You say, that man, Nicodemus, Nicodemus would have known 1 Samuel 10 well. And he says, Nicodemus, as you believe that you're going to be born again and become a new man. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, well, you're a student of the Bible. You should know what this means. And here in 1 Samuel 10, you say, wow, it's the same idea. When we become Christ followers, that here I am plowing through life, doing my own thing, doing what feels good, you know, but whatever. And, and God breaks into our life, right, through Jesus, that he quickens our hearts. And it's as if we become new people, that I, I, I no longer want to do that with my life. And, and, and now, now I'm devoting myself to the things of God. So the notion that the Spirit of God can break in and change a person from the inside out that is what he has done timelessly and for a time to this man, Saul. The second thing that the Spirit does for Saul is he gives him a speaking gift. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy. And a little bit further down in verse 11, and when all who knew Saul previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what's come over the son of Kish? That's Saul. Is Saul also among the prophets? Even more so that they developed this proverb, you know, is Saul, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, some have seen a kind of derision in this. Say, what's, what's happened to our buddy? 
he, he used to be a lot of fun in the pub, and now, now he's on the God Squad, uh, right? Is that what's happened here? That this guy who would never talk about the Lord, never talk about constructive things, all of a sudden starts talking about the Lord? That all of us, you might say today, well, I only see one person preaching today. What does this mean for me to say? Actually, if you, if you look at a passage, I think you don't have to turn there, but we'll think about it in the future. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, listen to this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, to really believe that Jesus is king. I'm not just saying, just saying it, but to really believe that Jesus is Lord is only a work of the Spirit of God. And every Christian say, why in the world would a man who's going through life ever think that it's a, a, a rational thing to do to say, I profess that Jesus, the Galilean carpenter, is king of the universe. And I believe it, and I'm basing my life on it. Say, it is the work of the Spirit of God breaking into our lives and giving us that ability. And you know, friends, I, I must say, one of the first things, you probably know somebody like this, but when a, an unconverted person who has a foul mouth comes to receive Jesus, that one of the first things that non-believers notice is that his or her speech are different. There's a man in our congregation, I wish I had thought of this earlier in the week so I could talk more specifically about it, but he said, you know, I went out, I became a Christian, he said, I played golf with these guys for 20 years. And every time before, you know, I'd hit the bad shot occasionally, you know, it'd go off the side. And, and every time uh, for 20 years, I'd hit the bad shot, out came profanity. And he said, but since I became a Christian, I was just playing, not even thinking about it. And the, the people I was playing with said, well, why, why didn't you swear? I mean, for, for 20 years, you, you did it one way, and now you're, now you're handling yourself differently that how we talk, how we use the gift of speech is one of the most evident ways that the Lord is at work within his people. This past week, I was given a great gift. You know, I, because I've only been a clergyman, I get to hang out with, with Christ followers often, which is great. But I was invited to a retirement party for, for Dick Mack at PNC Bank after 37 years. I was down with the bankers. It, it was great. I was deeply moved because Dick and Kathy gave a speech. Not only as I interacted, I asked these three young men, I said, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? They said, well, well Dick, Dick's a, a wonderful man. We, we don't do this often, but we're, we're here because of him. And as Dick would give his so-called retirement speech, he's talked about his faith in Christ, about the providence of God in his life, and I'm thinking, what in the world? would make a man think that it's appropriate to talk about Jesus here in the rotunda of Heinen's with all these bankers and lawyers. Unless, of course, it is the Spirit of God working within a man to give him the boldness to say, actually, my life belongs to the king. So the Spirit of God endows human beings for specific tasks. What we see in Saul is that there's a working, a changing of a person from the inside out that we no longer desire the things that we think we normally would if we, we didn't follow Jesus. That's very strange. I no longer will those things. I'm a different kind of a person. I've been changed into another man. What a thing to say. We've been born again. 
and also that God gives his people the ability in the right time to say things that really honor him. Finally, you'll notice those of you who know the Bible well say actually there's a problem. And the problem, if you flip forward a few pages in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14, this is a scary verse. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Say, that's a terrifying verse. Saul went off the rails. God said, I am no longer working through you. The spirit was on Saul. Things were looking good. The spirit is removed from Saul, and he does not finish well. Likewise, David in Psalm 51, that famous Psalm 51 in verse 11 says, Lord, take not your spirit from me. What the tension is, is that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, that the Spirit of God comes on a person, but is not in a person. That God will place his Spirit on a man or a woman to do a thing for a time, but then that Spirit of God is then removed, and it's as if the careful reader of the Bible, which, which we are, you, you have a tension. You say, well, God, wouldn't it be nice if the, if the Spirit could not just be on, but what if the Spirit was in? Would there be such a way that the third person of the Trinity, again, just wouldn't equip us occasionally to do tasks as good as that is, but what if your spirit could, could come in? Has, has that ever happened? Has there ever been one where the Spirit of God is in a person? And those of you, again, who think about this, say the Old Testament has all kinds of promises about a figure to come, a king who's going to be unlike all other kings. And for example, Isaiah in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 that there's a ruler who's going to come, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In other words, as the Bible would talk about this king to come, that there's going to be a different kind of relationship with God's Holy Spirit where the spirit would be in this figure, not just on. And that's exactly what we see unfold in God's redemptive history is that as Jesus come, that he is filled with God's spirit, he alone does exactly what the Father commands, that he is one who, again, the spirit is not on, but who is in. And then in turn, that this figure, this Jesus, distributes the spirit to all those who are his so that the spirit is in, in all of those who surrender to Jesus. That, again, if you read passages like Ezekiel 36, not 37, but 36, where God promises Israel, I'm going to give my spirit within you. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And this time, as you receive the spirit, that, that it's not a temporary thing, but for all those who are really his, it's a permanent thing. And that gives us great hope as the people of God. A few questions. First, for those who are following, following the Lord Jesus, if you take the hard inventory that I did this past week and say, you know what, I'm thinking about the busyness of the week ahead and all that I've got going on. Is there anything, just ask the question privately, is there anything different about me as being a follower of Jesus? What would it mean for me in my interactions this week to be led by the Spirit? To allow when there are frustrations and disappointments and tough interactions to say, you know what, here's what I, what I want to do, but actually there's a moment here to yield to what God wants to do through me. And in that, might I be different? Likewise, our character, our congregation as a 
church family to say, is this a place where the Spirit resides? Is there a real sense, I pray, a real sense among the members of this church that we don't just make good decisions, whatever that would mean, but to say, you know what, we really are, are dependent upon God. That, that, that we profess Jesus because of his spirit working in us. If, if, if people are converted, it is by the spirit, not by the way that we string our sentences together, although there's a better and worse way to do that. And if you're a non-Christian today, there's probably a side of you that says, yep, what I thought, a little weird. But there's another side of you that as you go out into the world and you see all the things that are really harmful, the hard things, the sad things, and you're hearing all the competing voices of life coaches and videos to watch and who knows what else, you know, influencers. Maybe you say, well, actually, this is very different. That God put forth Jesus into history the only man who lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross of all things, that somehow I see that my own rebellion was taken care of on that cross and that I can receive Jesus as my Savior and in so doing receive the Spirit of God that I might live in this complex world to his glory and be the person that I'm called to be. And I pray that if that's you, that you would today, by the prompting of this same Spirit, say, you know what, I, I do. I, I, I surrender to Jesus and I'm with him. And if so, that you'd be involved in the movement in this small local church called Providence. So church family, an ongoing conversation. But remember, we of all people have the hope of the Spirit, that we're new, changed from the inside out, that we don't desire the things that we did before we were Christians, but rather that our speech would be different, our conduct would be different, and that as God would, would put this on our minds, that we really can be led by the Spirit of God in the direction that he wants us to go. So I'll pray. Jim and the team will come up. Lord, thank you for the gift, the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we see, Holy Spirit, that you are there from all eternity, that you are responsible for ordering creation and carrying out, executing the redemptive plan of the Father. That in even as powerful as it was as the Spirit would come on individuals for specific times that were saying, oh, would it be that the Spirit of God could actually, that power could come within God's people? And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. That the Spirit was in Jesus and he has distributed the Spirit to be within those who truly know him. And Lord, I pray that this really would, would make a difference for us. That we could be thoughtful about being more mature followers, allowing your spirit to sanctify us. And Lord, by all means, that as we navigate these times as a church, to be really dependent, be open-handed and dependent upon where you're leading us to your glory. Amen.